0: listening to Living Lab Radio. I'm Heather Goldstone. When it's cold outside, we bundle up and head inside if we can. Some of us wish we could sleep the winter away like a bear. Others of us project our own coldness onto our pets, buying sweaters and blankets for dogs. But how do animals actually feel about winter? Is it miserable to be an animal? Well, that's the question that veterinarian Bridget Baker set out to answer in a recent piece for com. She is deputy director of the Warrior Aquatic Translational and Environmental Research Lab at Wayne State University in Michigan. Bridget, welcome to Living Lab Radio.
1: Hi, Heather. Thanks so much for having me.
0: I'm going to take a wild guess here and say that actually answering the question of whether or not animals are miserable is kind of beyond our reach. We
1: can't actually get into their heads, Right. That's correct. It's extremely difficult, if maybe not impossible, for us to really know subjectively what animals are thinking or feeling. Um, But we can look at some of their physical and physiological adaptations for the cold and give us kind of a hint as to what they might be experiencing. Well,
0: so the first step in responding to or adapting to cold, being cold, is that you have to sense that. And it's completely different whether we're putting our hand in a liquid or sensing the temperature of the air around us. It's different from person to person. What do we know about how animals sense temperature and and cold?
1: Well, it's actually fairly remarkable that in addition to people, most animal species have the same mechanism underlying physiology for sensing temperature, and we have uh, receptors close to the skin that sense hot and cold, and then that sends signals to our central nervous system in the spinal cord and brain. And, and that whole circuitry is actually fairly well-preserved among all vertebrate species.
0: Hmm. And yet we know just between people that sense of feeling cold, of being uncomfortably cold, varies dramatically from person to person. Is it kind of the same across the animal kingdom that, I don't know, 50 or 40 or 30 degrees Fahrenheit is cold, or does it vary between animals as well?
1: Yes, that varies quite a bit between animals. Uh, and in fact, there's research that shows that hibernating mammals even sense cold at lower temperatures than non-hibernating mammals. Really? Uh, yeah, like a good example is the 13-lined ground squirrel where they've shown that happens. And that's the same for example with cold-blooded or ectothermic animals versus warm-blooded or endothermic animals the ectothermic animals tend to sense cold at lower temperatures than endothermic animals.
0: That is exactly the opposite of what I would have expected. I would have (laughs) thought that the hibernating animals would be the most sensitive, and for that matter, the cold-blooded animals who can't really regulate their own temperature would be really sensitive to cold, and you're saying it's the exact opposite.
1: Correct, yes. Um, And I, I guess I don't necessarily have a good explanation for that, but I could maybe conjecture that... Um, hibernation is this prolonged state of decreased activity, and that's actually also a risky thing to do because when you're in that decreased state of activity, you're more likely to experience predation or becoming another animal's lunch, for example. Um, and then waking up from that decreased state of activity is also very energetically expensive, um... So in some ways it kind of makes sense that hibernating animals would um, want to sense temperatures at a colder level um, so that they don't enter that state unnecessarily or until it's absolutely necessary. It's
0: kind of a a last resort.
1: Correct, yes. And then for cold-blooded animals, you know, they're physiological processes slow down as it gets colder. So again, they would want to prolong the amount of um, time or temperatures at which they can still maintain their physiological processes.
0: Well, Bridget Baker, as a veterinarian, I have to ask, I mean, we do see animals responding even dogs will, uh, you know, pick up their paws when the ground is really cold. They'll shiver when they've been cold outside. And we've seen this industry of blankets and sweaters and booties and all sorts of hats, <laughs> yes. you know, whatever. Do they need that?
1: Well, a lot of times they're showing us that they do, you know, and in, in the fact that they're shivering or holding their paws, you know, before they became domesticated, they probably employed something more similar to wild, what wild canids employ, which is this counter-current heat exchange, in which warm blood from your heart um, passes close to the veins coming from the limbs and the ears um, to reduce heat loss at the periphery down, you know, at the, your extremities, while warming up blood that's coming back in towards your core or towards your heart. Um, but as they've become domesticated over time, there's a saying in biology, the use it or lose it. They haven't needed to use it in the same way, so, uh, so they can be losing some of these adaptations they had compared to their wild counterparts. So Bridget
0: Baker, one of the things you write about in your piece for theconversation.com uh, beyond this mechanism of keeping warm is some of the other fun and cool adaptations <laughs> that animals have I I guess I shouldn't say come up with, but that have arisen in the course of evolution for animals that live in the cold. What are some of your favorites?
1: Oh, goodness. Well, can I tell you one of my favorites for staying cool? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) One of the animals. So, uh, for example, vulture species like the California condor, when they're hot, they'll actually defecate straight onto their feet Hmm. in order to increase evaporative cooling. Wow. So... That's kind of one of my favorites. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, one of my favorite patterns uh, among like cold versus warm adapted species is that wildlife at more northern latitudes tend to have smaller uh, limbs and appendages than uh, similar species at like, more tropical locations. A good example of that would be the arctic fox, which is kind of a stocky, short-legged, small-eared species compared to like a fennec fox, which is more of a desert species, has longer limbs and really beautifully huge ears.
0: Despite all of these adaptations, whether it's to heat or to cold, animals are still vulnerable to extreme temperatures though, right? They can get frostbite, they can get hypothermia.
1: Oh yes, absolutely. And it in fact um well where I live in Michigan, uh opossums they uh have, you know, unfurred tails that are frequent that their tails are frequent casualties of cold exposure. Hmm. Um but even in Florida sometimes we see cold snaps, you know, unusual cold snaps happen in Florida. That's when you start seeing higher mortality levels in manatees, or even iguanas starting to fall from trees because of the cold stress and the cold exposure.
0: Here on Cape Cod, each fall and into the winter, we see sea turtles who have not moved back south far enough, fast enough, and end up being cold stunned and, and often wash ashore on our beaches. So that, that same kind of thing where it just uh, suddenly hit a point where they can't handle the cold.
1: That's correct. Yep, that's exactly it.
0: Bridget Baker, what prompted you to write about this topic for theconversation.com? Why why did you think that that we should all know a little bit more about how animals cope with winter?
1: Well, I think a lot of people, uh, and it makes sense, look out their window during the winter and think, oh my gosh, that poor animal, should I do something to help it or should I feed it uh, in order to help the animals survive through this cold temperature.
0: Yeah, I mean, should we be helping animals in
1: winter? And if so, how? Yeah, and that's actually a a great question, uh, and there's a lot of different factors to consider. Um, For example, in the northern Midwest, a lot of people feed deer, uh, and some of the downfalls of that idea is that bringing Uh, Prey species like a deer onto your property can attract predator species as well. So if you have small animals or children around, that's something you have to consider, for example. Um, It also brings a lot of deer into close proximity to each other, which can spread diseases among the deer. You also have to consider if you're feeding them and attracting them to your property in the winter that they're probably also going to come and overgraze your landscaping in the summer. So there are a lot of factors to consider. Generally what I recommend is create habitat um, that can support animals, even including birds. Focus on creating habitat that will keep them safe during the winter uh, rather than feeding them.
0: If you teach somebody to fish, it's better than handing them fish.
1: Exactly. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. Give them uh, the cover and the foraging opportunities through landscaping rather than directly feeding them. Um, And then if you do decide to feed birds, be mindful of what you're feeding, why you're feeding. Generally, don't feed birds that have uh, low population status because it can have all sorts of consequences that you're not intending a good example is actually from the Florida Scrub Jay. Their population status has been vulnerable. And so people started feeding them peanuts, which not only attracts them to interacting with people and relying on people, but then those that would be fed the peanuts because it's such a high nutritional content, they would reproduce earlier Hmm. and then their offspring would miss the emergence of certain insects they would rely on for food and so it actually created more of a problem than a benefit so there's a lot of things to consider when you when you start to feed wildlife good intentions are not always enough correct <laughs>
0: Bridget Baker is the deputy director of the Warrior Aquatic Translational and Environmental Research Lab at Wayne State University in Michigan. She wrote about animals coping with winter for Conversation.com. Bridget, thank you.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Up next, what it means for wine to be dry and how hard it is to measure that. Living Lab Radio continues after a short break.